if we haven't met before. Uh, and uh, great to be here today. Um, wasn't it a hot night last night? Um, uh, we, we used to live in Shell Harbour as a family. Kind of, um, We moved up here in Easter, so we've kind of done almost all of the seasons of Robertson. And so this is the first time we're kind of doing the summer. And I was told that normally in Robertson, if you have a really hot, humid day, it's okay because the night time will be cool. <laughs> Liars. Uh, it was it was intense last night, and uh, and then losing power as well in town. That's that's pretty horrible. Anyway, but we're looking at one Timothy over the next little while, and brief little side note before we really get stuck into it. Do you know what today's date is? It's o o two o two two o two o. And imagine if we were doing two Timothy two. Like we're doing 1 Timothy 1, so there's kind of a neatness to it there. But imagine if, if Tom was preaching 2 Timothy 2 on 0202020. That would just be funny. But the Lord in his wisdom decreed not for that to happen. And so we just have to roll with what we've got and, and we humbly submit to that. Anyway, um, we're looking at 1 Timothy over the next seven odd weeks. Uh, and the idea is that, you know, guardians of the gospel is a good little phrase for it. But today, particularly, what I want to ask the question about is um, as we look at these first seven verses, should we identify as Christian extremists? Okay, should we identify as Christian extremists? I'll get to more of that uh, as we kind of travel along through. But just to kind of intro uh, this book, we have this book is written by an old Paul. Most of the different letters that we have in the New Testament that are written by Paul, we can kind of find the story in Acts and see what he was up to in his missionary journeys there. But we can't really find the story of 1 Timothy in Acts. So we assume that it's after that when Paul was a bit of an older guy, and if you keep on reading into 2 Timothy, you can see you know, his years are fading and he's passing the baton uh, along to Timothy. So an old Paul writes to a young Timothy. Now, when we say young, um, I kind of, when I was a teenager, I took courage from those, those lines that say, um, you know, don't let anybody look down on you because of your youth. And I thought that Paul might have been talking about someone who was a teenager. It turns out that a youth in those days was a little bit older than just a teenager. A guy named Irenaeus wrote that the, uh, the first stage of a young man's life uh, from when he turns 30 to 40. So I'm in the first stage of a young man's life. Graham is in the second stage of a young man's <laughs> life. We are young men. We are youth. Um, and that, that's, that's probably how old Timothy was, right? He was probably in his, in his early to mid-30s, similar to me. Um, and so as well as knowing that he was young, it also seems that Timothy was quite timid or shy. Paul is really strong in the way that he encourages him and, and calls him out of a spirit of timidity and to be brave and to be strong. And we also know that he had a little bit of an upset stomach, uh, stomach, tummy, stomach, same thing, uh, a little bit of an upset stomach every now and again. And so Paul encourages him to take a bit of wine with your dinner each night. And so our picture of, of Timothy is we've got an old elder statesman who's done the ministry for a while um, encouraging the young, uh, timid, weak Timothy. That's the kind of picture that we get there. And so if we look at that, they're the kind of um, what's going on there. Let's look at what he actually says, because if we go to verse 3 in our passage, it gives a really good helpful summary for the kind of message that's going on in 1 Timothy. It says... As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer. The message of 1 Timothy is to stay 
and to guard the gospel. In a lot of ways, this is similar to Galatians or to Corinthians, where there was other people in those churches that were saying, oh, I don't know if Jesus is the right way. Let's, um, let's have a look at these other speculative kind of things. But the message of 1 Timothy is to stay and to guard the gospel. And that's played out in a number of different ways. But the style in which Paul communicates this message to Timothy is quite unique. It's a little bit different to Galatians or Corinthians. He has quite a force about the way that he does it. What I'm going to do now is just read out a few of the different um, uh, verses throughout 1 Timothy. And I want you to try and pick up the style uh, of speaking that Paul gives to Timothy as he does it. In 1.18, he says, I give you this charge, fight the good fight. And in 6.11, he also says, fight the good fight. In chapter 6, verse 20, he says, you must guard what has been entrusted to you. And then if we go over into 2 Timothy, in chapter 2, he says, endure hardship like a good soldier. And in chapter 4, verse 1, he says that that big charge, in the presence of God and before Jesus Christ, the judge of the living and the dead, dot, dot, dot. Can you get the style of what's going on here? As I read this, I can't help but to feel that it's got a military style, that the elder chief, the elder commander, elder officer is charging the younger soldier to guard the gospel. If that's the style, then we need to ask, okay, what is he actually teaching him to do? Because Paul is pretty nitty gritty in this letter, perhaps more so than any others. And if we go to chapter 3, verse 14, then there's a really helpful summary of the type of thing that, uh, that Paul's trying to get Timothy to do here. He says, I'm writing this, so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. So it's a military style, and he's teaching them, this is what I expect of people in God's household. And he's, he's really kind of clear about his expectations. He talks about what women should wear, about the expectations of leaders, about how to recognise true widows, about how to pay church staff. Like the senior officer is giving very detailed expectations and how to, how to have almost a military adherence to these. And, it, and I guess at this point, I wonder if it's appropriate for us, for us to ask, why is it okay for Paul to be so military with civilians? Does that kind of make sense? Like he's not allowing any dissensions at all, anyone to, to move away from this stated body of truths. And he's telling them exactly how they must act in the household. And so the question that I was pondering as I was kind of preparing this is, is it okay for us to identify as Christian extremists? Does that make sense? Can you see how Paul is being quite fundamental or quite radical in this way? Because for us, like those, those words often don't carry very positive Overtones do that. You don't turn up to a dinner party and say, hey guys, I'm a Christian extremist. <laughs> you want a brownie? Like, it, just, it just doesn't go down very well. And so, but, but I think it's a helpful way to look at this passage and to look at the whole of 1 Timothy as well. Is it okay for us to identify as Christian extremists? Because we take the Bible very seriously, don't we? And so to think about that, I thought it might be helpful to first think about um, how does somebody normally get to a place where they identify as uh, an ideological extremist of any sort? Like it could be, you know, extreme political left, extreme political right, extreme religious of any sort. How do people end up at that place? And I can think of two major categories. You might be able to think of more. But the two major categories that I can think of that would lead somebody to a point of uh, of ideological extremism would be the tribal factor and then the purpose factor. 
And the tribal factor could just be that you were born into it, right? This is what your family, you were born into a cult and they believe this and so you're just accepting it because that's what your people believe. Or perhaps you joined a community later on in life and because for us humans the desire to belong and to be accepted by others is an incredibly powerful motivator, a number of people often end up with a radical ideological, uh, a radical ideology because they belong to a tribe. And so that's the first reason someone might end up there. The second motivator is perhaps the purpose one. And this is usually the purpose after crisis. So somebody might end up believing something really radical because they've had a crisis in their life and they've had a, a, the world has no longer been understandable and now it's chaotic and there's turmoil in their soul and they're wondering how to make sense of all this. And usually a radical ideology provides a black and white understanding of the world. And so it soothes a chaotic soul. It provides meaning and purpose in the midst of anxiety. And they're often quite helpful in that way. Sometimes they're simplistic, but they do certainly bring comfort to an anxious and turmoiled soul. And so they're probably the two ways that somebody can end up in a position where they believe that they are an extremist. And so we don't want to get too far away from our passage, but we need to ask the question, is, is that us? Or is that, is that Timothy and, and the people in the church of Ephesus back then? And it might be helpful to note as well that I think for the most part, people end up in these situations because it's soothing to their soul. It, it helps them. In some, case, case, in some ways, it's kind of like self-medication. Now let's look at chapter 1, verse 5, and see the reason and the purpose why... Paul suggests that they should be extremists. He says, The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Can you see that difference there? I don't think it's quite appropriate for us to call ourselves extremists because our motivations, although we do find purpose in Jesus, although we do find a tribe in Jesus, our motivations for sticking to the gospel and defending it are because of love. Paul is charging Timothy to say to those guys who are teaching the wrong thing, stop them. Don't let them do that because he wants those people to be loved, to know truth, to know the gospel properly. And he wants the people who are listening to them to know love as well, to know the gospel, to know truth, and to have it um, taught to them properly. It's not so that Timothy can feel smug, that, that he can feel like he's you know, in the right and they're in the wrong. It's out of love that he defends the one true way. Um, a couple of weeks ago, when the fires were coming up uh, from the south uh, and they were about to cross over the Shoalhaven River, I remember watching social media and there was a number of posts, I don't know if you saw any of these, where people were saying stuff like, hey, my auntie lives nearby here and she just saw the, um, the fire jump over this little bit and there was some speculative posts from unconfirmed authorities that got shared and got shared and got shared and they were not helpful. They caused mass, they caused panic that didn't need to be caused panic where we should have been sticking to the, the known authorities. And so pretty soon after that, I remember like the RFS page and the appropriate channels um, issuing posts that said, you must listen to what we've got. And now, these guys weren't doing this because they wanted to feel right. Can you see? They were doing it out of love. They were sincere. They were pure. They had good motives. And I think there's a similar crossover with us. 
Um, Paul is urging Timothy to get the information from the one right channel, from Jesus. We must stick to the gospel out of love, not because we want to feel right, not because we want to feel like this is the in club or anything like that. And so in that sense, I don't think it's right to call ourselves Christian extremists, but perhaps guardians of the gospel. You know, uh, We are posted by Jesus to do that. But I kind of like the idea um, of using this extremist language just because it's kind of playful and it gets our mind thinking. But let's think a little bit about Jesus for a moment because in some ways Jesus was an extremist, right? He stood up and he said, hey, guys, you know death? Yeah, I'm going to crush that. Like normally people who say that they can crush death are crazy. They're lunatics. They're not worth being followed. If you look in, in Mark's gospel, if you go to Mark 8.31, 9.31 and 10.33, they, see how they're almost similar? That's the spot where Jesus says, um, I will be betrayed, I will be handed over, I will be mocked and killed and then three days later I will rise again from the dead and his disciples didn't know what they were talking about and that's I, I find that quite helpful to remember um, 8.31, 9.31 and 10.33 today's a bit of a numbers sermon isn't it there's a few kind of anyway that's an aside um, and so Jesus said I can crush death and so how did he then apply that extremism to the people around him well he applied it with beautiful wisdom do you remember the story of Jairus and his daughter and how Jairus came up falling on his knees to Jesus and saying, hey, you've got to come with me. My daughter, she's about to die. And so Jesus said, sure, I'll go with you. And then they were walking along in the crowd and in the midst of that crowd was a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, who had spent all that she had to try and fix this but couldn't. And so in the midst of that crowd, she decided that Jesus could do it so she was going to steal the power from him. So she reached out and touched the edge of the cloak. Who touched me? Said Jesus. And then all of his disciples were like, hey, come on, bro. We're like in a crowd, Middle East. Everyone's sweating on each other. It's all dusty. Like, everyone's touching you. Uh, and Jesus was like, no. Somebody touched me. I felt the power come out of me. And then this woman, realizing she could no longer go unnoticed, came trembling before and told the whole story. And Jesus said, how dare you? He said, daughter, go in peace. Your faith has healed you. The extremist Jesus offers tender love and mercy to those who need it. And yet compare that to the way that he deals with the Pharisees. You brood of vipers. Have you read the six woes in Luke? Man, that is scary stuff. Don't read that before bed. It's it's a little bit unsettling. And so Jesus applies his extremism to different people according to what they need. He is tender and he is strong accordingly with wisdom. And yet, the final person to compare it to is Nicodemus. Uh, He was a Pharisee, the enemy. Jesus comes down hard on the enemies, doesn't he? But if you think about what he did with Nicodemus, you know John 3.16, for God so loved the world, that verse was spoken in night time because Nicodemus wanted to meet with Jesus and Jesus knew that night time was the best time to do it because it was not quite appropriate for him to be doing this out loud. So he met with him as he answered the questions of what it means to be reborn, what it means to have eternal life. And so Jesus can be hard with the Pharisees. He can knock them down, but he can also be tender and open. He has, he's an extremist. He believes that he can crush death, and he did, but he applies that 
with wisdom. And I guess that's what we're going to do as we look through 1 Timothy. He's going to show us how to guard the gospel, how to defend this truth, but do it with godly wisdom to all the different people. And ultimately, I guess Jesus, you know, he kept on condemning sin, but beautifully he condemned sin so hard and loved us so tenderly that he said, I'm going to condemn myself for the sake of you. And that's, that's the gospel that we know, isn't it? That Jesus did that for us. And so we're not extremists, but we do guard the gospel. And so I guess the final question that we need to ask as we kind of get into 1 Timothy, if we are to guard the gospel, if we are to watch our life and our doctrine closely so that we might save ourselves and our hearers, we need to ask, well, what is doctrine? What is sound teaching? What is this gospel? Because if you scan 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy for a little statement of this is the sound doctrine, this is the list of beliefs that we have, then then you won't really find it. Even if you scan all of the New Testament for this is doctrine, it's still kind of hard to find. I guess if you read Romans, that's the closest as a kind of a really clear outline of what the gospel is. But even that was a topical letter to a people who had a specific issue. And so when we ask, what is the gospel, or what is uh, sound doctrine, that's probably a a better um, word to describe this, we need to think hard about that. And conveniently, Paul actually does answer it very clearly. Because, you know, when you become a Christian, it's not like you're joining a club. And you're saying, okay, I want to join this club. Here's your body of beliefs. Um, I'm going to read all of these and then sign on the bottom and then I'll get a special robe or something like that. And then you are now in the club because you've signed off on their ideology. Being a Christian is very different to that. Um, It's not signing off on an ideology. It's worshipping a man and what he has done for us. Um, I love 1 Timothy because a few times in it, Paul can't help but to break into song. Um, my kids are young and we watch a few Disney movies and every now and again someone's just talking and then they just break into song. And this is, this is like 1 Timothy is kind of like a musical. Uh, if, if you go to chapter 1, verse uh, 16, Paul is describing his personal testimony, his conversion. And he says, But for that very reason I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners... Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. And you can kind of realise that's the moment where it's like all flooding back to him, the Damascus Road experience, his conversion, and then he just breaks out. He's like, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. I can imagine like an African-American choir and like a, you know, the speaker at the front just like proclaiming this. Again, he does it also in chapter 3, verse 16. He's saying, Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great, for he appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, and was taken up into glory. <laughs> Something like that. Uh, he, he can't help but to break into song. You know why? Because for him, sound doctrine isn't a body of text that he signs off on. For him, sound doctrine is the story of his conversion. Sound doctrine is Jesus Christ. That's, that's the body of text that he believes in, the body and blood of the one that we worship. And so to kind of wrap this up, as, 
as we think about this question of is it appropriate for us to identify as a Christian extremist, I think there's some crossovers, right? But what we've got is so much better because in Christ, we don't have an ideology. We have a saviour and a hope, as he declares in chapter 1, verse 1. In Christ, we don't have a tribe. We have a family, you and me and each other. Like This is because we've been adopted into the family we have a f- been adopted by the Father, we have a family in each other. And finally, we don't just have a purpose, sorry, that was a bit strong, we don't just have a purpose, although we do, but we have something much more than that. We have a mission to guard the gospel together. And so over the next six or seven weeks, we're going to learn how Timothy, how Paul encourages Timothy to do that and how we might apply it here at Robertson. Shall I pray? Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you gave this message from Paul to Timothy. And we thank you that in Jesus we can find our God, our saviour and our hope. We thank you for the way that you provided a family and a mission to guard this gospel. Amen.